Let me review kind of where we've been. If this is your first Sunday or you're just kind of getting oriented to the Lord's Prayer, uh, this is where we've been so far. I'm going to try to do this really quickly. Uh, We started with our Father in Heaven, and this idea of addressing God as Father is is not only this this, uh, form of intimacy, where where we this familiarity, which is unique, that we can say God is our, our Father, He's our Abba, we can call Him Daddy. There's lots of power to that. And some of you see God as sort of this intimidating figure that's just sort of this power and this source that's just kind of out there. Uh, But what scripture teaches over and over again is that yes, he's all powerful. Yes, he's omniscient and he's all these kinds of things, but he's also this God that we can call Abba, that we can call Father, that we can address him in a way that is familiar. We can address him in a way that is intimate, but it's not just that. Calling him Father is a way of saying that by faith or through faith in Christ, I've accepted my position as a child of God and now I am calling God my Father. In other words, it's a way of signing on to the kingdom of God. It's a way of saying that through faith in Christ, this Christian thing is a high priority in my life. It's the priority in my life, and the kingdom of God is where my highest allegiance is held. That's all packed into this idea of calling God Father. Now, from there, we're taught to pray for God's kingdom to come, and that we got to understand that this reality that heaven and earth are not these separate things that never touch, but rather heaven and earth are interlocked. They're overlapping with one another and then praying this prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is in itself a call to action. It's a commitment to say that not only am I calling you father by faith, but I'm also now committing myself to operate in the world that will bring about your kingdom, that will help demonstrate the kingdom of God or the way of Jesus. And so it's a, it's, we can't just pray that prayer or that line of the prayer passively. We have to pray it actively that God, as I am praying for your kingdom to come, my actions are being met with the words that I'm praying. Does that make sense? So it's a call to action. And then we pray, we are taught to pray, give us today our daily bread. Now bread is sort of the central image of the kingdom of God, right? Because we anticipate the great feast of the lamb. That is where all the people of God will be gathered together to celebrate uh, the great feast where bread is central to that as Jesus was uh, in the Last Supper. He's, he teaches us to eat bread and to do it in remembrance of Him. And so bread is the central symbol in Scripture of, of, for the kingdom of God. And so this way of saying, give us today our daily bread, is a way of saying not only are we committing ourselves to work for the kingdom of God, but now we are praying and asking God that we would experience His kingdom. That we would find this Jesus to be sufficient and powerful enough to meet us in our time of need, that we might experience the forgiveness, the healing, the redemption, and the reconciliation of the way of of the cross, okay? So it's this way, so this prayer builds on itself. Do you see that? Our Father, I'm, I'm signing on to the kingdom of God, I'm committing to work for the kingdom of God, and then I'm praying that I might experience the kingdom of God. And then forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness is central to the kingdom of God because all of us have been offered the greatest forgiveness of all through Christ. And essentially the bottom line of that message was, is, is the forgiven forgive. And that as we experience the forgiveness of God, part of the overflow of that forgiveness is that we offer forgiveness to those who hurt us. And that if we refuse to do so, it's not something that we just should do. It's not something that, that would be nice to refuse to forgive 
as we have been forgiven, is to cut off the branch that we're sitting on. And so it's not just something that, oh, kind of as a higher morality, you should do this. It's absolutely central to kingdom living is to offer that forgiveness. And so today, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this line of the prayer, just like all the others, is really rooted in the life of Jesus himself and the kingdom that he proclaimed. And you'll realize that the primary theme, sort of the foundation of this prayer, is the reality of the kingdom of God. That everything is sort of framed by the, by the, uh, in terms of or in the perspective of the kingdom of God. And so this is really no different. Uh, and so I want to give you just a little bit of Greek words here because I think that uh, it will help us to understand the real root of what's going on here. Uh, the Greek word that is used here for temptation, lead us not into temptation, is, is the Greek word uh, parasmos. Parasmos. And this is really, it's not temptation in the way that you and I would think of. That, oh, now I'm, I'm tempted to sort of uh, fall into some sort of personal sin. I'm tempted to lie, cheat steel and all that good stuff. Uh, what, this is actually kind of more profound than that. It's more, uh, it's deeper than that. Uh, this, this word is really about a trial or a testing. And so lead us not into the time of trial. Lead us not into the time of the great testing or the great tribulation, as some commentators have said. And what we realize is that we look at the life of Christ. Again, this line is rooted in his life. And as we look at his life, he faced trial and temptation and testing over and over and over again, right? I mean, here's just a, a broad scope or a broad, broad sweep. But right after his baptism, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was led into the wilderness in order to be tempted, in order to be Tested, And the nature of the testing that, that Satan was bringing about was it was testing the implications of his vocation as Savior. In other words, the, the, the devil is saying to him, if you truly are the Savior, then prove it by doing this. And Jesus has to come back with the word of God and saying, it's not yet time for me to fully live into this vocation that I have as Savior. And so it's really a testing of his identity and of who he is. Now, he returns from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come and it has arrived in him. But as always, it was met with opposition. He fa- even, as, even after he begins preaching and doing his ministry and performing all these miracles and gathers this following, what does he have? He has, a, he has the peanut section that's ready, to br- that's ready to bring him down, right? They're not saying amen. They're saying crucify him, okay? And so he's also, throughout his ministry, he's facing this testing. And then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is brought to a time of trial once more as he faces death on the cross, and I want to read to you uh, the passage from the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's found in Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Uh, I think it will be up on the screen as well for you to follow along. Uh, but I want to, as, as we're talking about trial, temptation, and tribulation, I want to really focus in on what we can learn from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's, uh, let me read it, and you guys can follow along. Uh, but this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the cross, and um, just before he's arrested to go to Calvary. And here's what the account says. Matthew chapter 26. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and, his two, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell to his face, uh, to the, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you, couldn't you men keep watch with me for more than one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I, unless I drink it, then may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. For here comes my betrayer. Now what we have to realize is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of history is sort of pouring down on Christ. That all of history, where the the development of Israel as the people of God, and the expectation of the Messiah that would finally come, is all pushing towards this moment of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus is facing that right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so sort of the, the direction of all of history is pushing in towards him. It's racing towards him. He knows what lays before him. And so he prays, if it's at all possible, If there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, may your will be done and not mine. That sounds suspiciously like the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, doesn't it? May your will be done. May may your uh, kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so again, Jesus is living out the very prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. And what's happening here is that he knows that the new age that is about to dawn, the kingdom of God as it is breaking forth in reality, uh, that this new way of living called the way of Christ must come through his pain and through his suffering. Now, I've experienced a little bit about this week, a little bit about new life coming through pain and suffering, right? Right? I mean, this is very much akin to a woman who labors and is in pain and is in suffering. And yet that pain and that suffering leads to the beauty of new life. In the same way, Jesus is right here. He's saying the only way, he's realizing that the will of God is that the only way that the kingdom of God will be fully birthed into the world is through his own pain and suffering on the cross. And so that's precisely what he's feeling as all the expectation of this new life, this new kingdom of God, this Messiah and his work would come upon him. And so... This brand new age will come through anyone that puts their faith in him. And yet, he tells his disciples something curious. He goes to them and says, are you still sleeping? Why don't you stay awake? And why don't you pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation? Now, if you're anything like me, I'm thinking about like the, the, how we would typically understand temptation, right? As though the disciples, at the, on the night that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, is going to go and, and, and commit some personal sin like they lie to one another, 
right? That doesn't seem like much of a temptation in this moment of time. So is that what Jesus is really talking about? Is he really just saying, be careful not to commit small sins while I'm over here saving the world, right? Does that seem a little bit out of balance? And so what we have to realize is that what he's calling them to is actually much deeper and much more profound. He's saying, do not go and pray while I'm over here knowing that I must take on all the evil of the world. That the the, the whirlpool of evil is going to sweep me in and I'm going to pay its price, the price of death. For sin and evil must lead to death, right? And so... We find Jesus caught in this scope of evil saying to his his disciples, don't be pray so that you're not tempted. And I really don't think that he's talking about some sort of um, personal sin like lying or don't go and steal while I'm here in the garden. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm now facing and the evil of all the ages is rushing in and I'm having to take it in. And there is a chance that as this whirlpool of evil comes about that you might also be sucked in. And so pray that you would not be led into the time of trial or testing. It's not about don't, don't commit some small personal sin while, while I'm here in the garden. It's about protecting yourself from the force of evil as I take it on. Does that make sense? It's much more profound. It's much more dangerous even than some sort of small sin. And so, lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. Here's what we have to come to terms with. Jesus gave this line, this prayer to his disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But when Jesus himself prayed that prayer, the answer was no. He was led to the time of testing. And he was not delivered from evil. That's hard to grasp. That's hard to swallow. But this Christmas season, what we have to realize is that Christmas leads to Good Friday. That as we ourselves pray that we might be delivered, that we might be kept from evil, we must realize that Jesus himself was not. And when we realize that, and then we read in Genesis chapter 6 that the inclination of every human heart is always evil all the time, it's pretty sobering. That my heart, left to its own, is going to churn against God. It's going to seek to serve me and me alone. But the truth of the gospel is this. The truth of the gospel is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on every act of sin. That he took on all that evil in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the cross, he took on every sin, every evil. And as that, and, and, and as that evil became heavier and heavier on his shoulders, it brought him to death. And of course it led to death because that's what sin and evil do. But his death did not last forever. Because just as Christmas leads to Good Friday, so Good Friday leads to Easter. Right? The good news 
is that as Jesus took on the evil of the world, he also defeated that evil. And that is so profound for you and I. Because evil comes against us in all forms and in all fashions in our life. That the, 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 if there is a liar, a deceiver, an evil one in your life seeking to bring that evil up against you in any form or fashion that he can manage. He wants to catch you in the time of your weakness. He knows where you are vulnerable and he's bringing evil constantly against you to try to derail the victory that is already yours in Christ Jesus. And so what we need to realize is that yes, Jesus took on the evil. Yes, the answer to his prayer was no, you must be led the time of testing. You must be led into the whirlpool and the deep hole of evil, but knowing that Jesus himself, the son of God will come out of that hole victorious. He will die, but he will raise again. And in fact, he has raised again. And so we live in victory because of what Jesus has done. Am I preaching yet? Does my voice sound tired? It is. I'm tired. And so we're commanded this, to pray this prayer to be delivered from the power of evil. And we can pray it with confidence precisely because Jesus met that evil and then defeated it once and for all. That's great, Pastor. Evil's been defeated. Why do I still struggle with it? Why do I still feel like evil is coming against me? Or what can I do about it? Or that's great. If evil has been defeated, how come it's still here? Right? Some of you may be thinking about that. How am I supposed to approach evil if, if you have this great message that it's been all defeated and yet I see evidence of it everywhere I look? Well, there's three, there's three kind of approaches to evil in, in light of all this. Uh, the first one is we can pretend that evil doesn't exist at all, uh, which would be rather ignorant on our part, right? To deny that there is a, a deceiver and an evil one that is coming against us and lying to us, bending the truth of God to derail the victory that we have in Christ, would be pretty ignorant. But that's one approach. We could just pretend that evil doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter. Yes, people do stupid stuff. Yes, there's evil in the world. But if we all just try a little bit harder, everything will be fine. That's a bit like saying, yes, the house is on fire and it's getting a bit warmer. But if I just take off a layer of clothing and have a drink, I'll be fine. Right? <laughs> and to omit this line in the prayer would be a prayer that would be evidence of this fault. If we, if we just said, you know, we're not even going to pray that we would be delivered from evil. It, it would be a way of saying, you know, evil doesn't even matter. Evil doesn't exist. It's not real. That's one approach. And I don't think that's the best approach. Because as soon as we say that something doesn't exist, it's going to hit us in the face. As soon as we say we're not prone to any kind of attacks of the enemy, we're a prime suspect for the evil to catch us. And so I don't think that's the best approach. The second approach is, is to sort of wallow in evil or see it around every corner. Have you, have you ever met somebody like that? Where they just like, all they can think about is how evil is like everywhere. And, and, and they just really, let's just be honest, they give the devil just way too much credit. Right? I mean, they just, they're like, evil is like around every corner all the time. And, you know, I, I just feel like this kind of leads to being paranoid. <laughs> you know, where they, they see a demon behind every bush. And so we can ignore it 
or we can wallow in it and see uh, evil around every corner. And, and actually to make, to make this line of the prayer, this, this line that says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, to make that central to the prayer would be evidence of this mistake, right? If we omitted it, it'd be like saying, you know, evil doesn't matter and it doesn't exist. If we said, you know, the most central part of the Lord's prayer is this prayer that we'd be delivered from evil. If that becomes central, then, then this is evidence of this mistake where we're just, we're living in it. We're wallowing in the evil. We're paranoid. We see it around every corner. A third approach would, and I don't think that's the best approach. A third possible approach would be the, the approach of, of self-righteousness. There's evil out there, but I'm the righteous one. You know, There's evil out there, but I can defeat it. There's evil out there, but, I, but through my own effort, I can overcome it. This sort, of, this sort of self-righteous approach. That will never happen to me. And we kind of see ourselves as the answer to the prayer. As though through virtue the world is rid of its evil. Through my personal virtue. Well, that doesn't sound very good either. Because I don't know about you, but anytime I've tried to rely on my own self-righteousness, it hasn't gone very well. Right? So is there a middle ground? Is there a truly gospel-centered approach to how we ought to approach evil? I believe this. This is the middle ground that I feel like the scripture kind of points us toward. Recognize the reality and the power of evil. But then confront it with the reality and the power of the kingdom announcement in Christ. Jesus intends for his followers to recognize not only the reality of evil, but the reality of victory over it. Right? I think that's a great middle approach. We're not wallowing in the evil. We're not making that central. We're saying, yes, evil is real. And yes, evil is powerful. Right? We can say evil is real, but not declare that it's powerful and find ourselves vulnerable. But if we say, yes, evil is real and it's powerful. And yet, Christ who took on that evil is far more powerful and every bit is real. And so we have this, this reality of evil, but in the face of that evil, we make this tremendous announcement that this one who was born at Christmas great, grow, grew up not just to do a ministry that would be a great model for us. We don't need a model. We need a savior, right? And so he grew up doing a ministry, proclaiming the reality of the kingdom of God, showing us the way of Jesus. But then at the end of his life, he takes on all the evil of the world, of all the ages and of all time, dies and then defeats it through the resurrection. And so, yes, evil is real and it's powerful, but the kingdom announcement is every bit as real and more powerful and, in fact, defeats it. Here's also something we ought to do. Evil is real and powerful, and it isn't something that's just out there. Have you ever made that mistake? Evil's out there. It's present, and, you know, it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of out there, but it will never touch me. And some of you who have been victims of great evil realize that mistake. I never thought that would happen to me, and yet you find yourself sitting right in the middle of evil. But here's something we also have to realize. Remember that, remember that scripture I referenced earlier in Genesis chapter 6, that the inclination of every human heart is evil all the time? A sobering thought that you and I have to come to terms with this morning is that evil is not something that's just out there that will never touch me. It's in fact within each one of us. Wow, that's really bad news. So how do I 
How do I rid myself of that evil? Or perhaps another perspective of what, what kinds of things would I do that would give evil that foothold that it's looking for in my life? Evil finds a foothold in our lives when we find ourselves caught up in worship of anyone or anything other than the one true God. That's how evil grabs a hold in our hearts. Because evil is within us. Left to our own, we would rebel against God. And so we have to realize that evil just isn't out there. It's, it's within us. And it happens when we worship that which is not God. And how easy it is in our culture to construct gods other than the true God in our life. Most often we don't construct gods as a way of, of, of kind of violently opposing ourselves to the one true God. Maybe we've given our heart to him. We've been following him and we would never uh, allow anything to come into our hearts that would, that would take his place. And so most often for, uh, for a majority of us, we're not actively sort of denying God and replacing him with an idol. Most of the time what happens is we take a little bit of God and a little bit of this and a little bit of God and a little bit of this. And all of a sudden we don't have one true God, one allegiance in our life. We have a ton. And we say, I give a little bit of my allegiance to God on Sundays, but on Mondays what's most important is the accumulation of wealth at work. And then on the weekends, what's most important is, uh, on Saturday, what's most important is the uh, accumulating influence and a platform so that I can raise myself up for my own glory. Right? And so what happens most often is we don't just say, God, you're done, and replace him with something else. We forget that with God as the head, he dictates every other area of our life. He dictates how we spend our time, what our priorities are, what, where, our, where our money goes, all of these things. But more often than not, we say, I'll have my little bit of God, but at the meantime, in the meantime, for my own good and for my own glory, I'm going to accumulate as much wealth as I can. Here's what I, you know they say that you are what you eat? In which case, I'm a Chipotle burrito. <laughs> what I would want to say to you today is you are what you worship. You are what you worship. You become like that which you worship. And so if most important to you is the accumulation of wealth in this life, you will become selfish. selfish. If what is most important to you is sort of raising yourself up, a higher platform, more influence, more power, you will become arrogant. Because you become like that which you worship. You are what you worship. And on the other hand, if you worship God, and Scripture says that God is love and that God is good, then you, the own character of your life as you worship Him and Him alone, it will begin to spill out. And the Scripture calls it the fruit of the Spirit. You will begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so evil is not something out there. It's something that's within us. But that evil can be squashed out for as long as we hold our allegiance completely to God and God alone and keep ourselves free from idols. Now, we may not always do that perfectly. We may not always do it just right. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to guide us in that process. So that when something sneaks in and all of a sudden we have God and this and they're equal, 
Then it says this thing, whatever has come in the way, the Holy Spirit says that's got to come under the allegiance of God. That's what it looks like. So evil is not something that's just out there. It's within us. And when we give our hearts to idols, that evil gains a foothold. But when we worship God and God alone, we experience Jesus' victory. Because evil is, is very real and it's powerful, but again, what I want to say to you is that Jesus' Jesus's victory is also real. And sometimes we do the same thing with the victory of Christ that we do with evil. We say it's out there. Oh, they're experiencing great victory in Christ. Praise the Lord for what God is doing in their life. I just wish that he would. I wish that he could do it in my life, right? And so sometimes we say evil will never capture me. But in the same breath, we say, nor can I experience the victory of God. And so we sort of push both ends out there and we leave ourselves as an island unto ourselves. And we isolate ourselves. And we sort of say that everything is up to me. It's up to me to keep myself from evil. And it's up to me to be righteous on my own. And what what the scripture teaches us is that we ourselves house both evil and the victory of God. Which seat is it? Who has you? Is it the evil that's naturally inside of you? Or is it the spirit of Christ who enters you through faith as you place your faith in him and give him your full allegiance? Don't you dare push the victory in Christ to someone out there because it is every bit as available to you as it is to them. And so sometimes we make the error of saying that victory is out there, but in fact it also lives within us. And when we churn from idolatry and we worship God and when we give him our full allegiance, we are made new. Victory over evil becomes not only possible, but real. Right? It becomes not only possible, but real. And that's part of what we want to do in our series, Road to Freedom, at the beginning of the year, is I want to help take this truth, this very truth that I'm talking about today, and I want to give you some practical tools and some help so that you can begin to experience this victory on a brand new level. But the first foundation is that we have to realize the truth that the victory of God is made available to you and it lives within you through faith. Are you with me? And so I hope you'll be here for every single week of that series. Let me close up with this. To pray, deliver us from evil, is to inhale the victory of the cross and to hold the line against evil for one more moment, one more hour, one more day against the forces of destruction in our lives and in the world. And many times we move back and forth. One moment we're basking in the victory of the cross. The next we're giving our heart away once more. But the practice of the Christian life is to give Jesus our all. And then to give him some more. So many times we bounce back and forth. The practice of the Christian life is to give Jesus our all. And then give him some more. I have used as a resource for this series this incredible little book by theologian N.T. Wright called The Lord and His Prayer. And uh, this book, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit is what 
has kind of led to the culmination of this series. And I want to end this series with some of N.T. Wright's thoughts on this line because I feel like there's no way that I could communicate them as well as he has in this book. So I'm going to read this passage and then I'm going to pray and we'll we'll move into our time of reflection. Uh, But please, it's it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but please stay plugged in. These are powerful, powerful words regarding this line of the Lord's Prayer as we close this series. We are called to look out, as we pray this prayer, we're called to look out on the world and to pray, do not, do not let us be led to the test, but deliver us from evil. And this is part of the prayer for the kingdom. It is the prayer that the forces of destruction, of dehumanization, of anti-creation, of anti-redemption may be bound up and gagged, and that God's good world may escape from being sucked down into their morass. It is our responsibility as we pray this prayer to hold, God, to hold God's precious and precarious world before our gaze and to sum up its often inarticulate cries for help and for rescue and for deliverance. Deliver us, Lord, from the horror of war. Deliver us from the human folly and the appalling accidents that it can produce. Let us not become a society of rich fortresses and cardboard cities. Let us not be engulfed by social violence or by self-righteous reaction. Save save us from the arrogance and pride of the awful things that they make people do. Save us, Lord, from ourselves and deliver us from the evil one. And you can't pray this prayer from a safe distance. You can only pray them when you are saying yes to God's kingdom coming within you. Yes to the call... uh, Yes to the call to follow Jesus to Gethsemane. Yes to the vocation uh, to go to the place of pain and to the pain and, and in that pain prayerfully in the presence of God who wept in Gethsemane and then died on Calvary. 